Back then, the MVP, again, was really just a creation-only app. It was a super simple flow. The app had literally three screens. We ended up skipping anything server-side, you know, so completely no user accounts, no databases, nothing. It might sound funny, but we hosted a simple JSON file on this streak that included all the, the metadata, you know, so every sound was like a little dictionary, a little blob in that in that JSON list with the name where the, the sound file was, was stored sometimes a couple tags and the group it was in and then kind of like that json file really acted as our api back then my name is tim specht i'm the co-founder and cto of dub smash this is code story a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labpark, and today how Tim Spake created the easiest, most fun way to make short-form music videos for your friends. All this and more on Code Story. Originally from Berlin, Germany, Tim Spake started programming for fun during high school. He had no plans to make a career out of it, in fact, he wanted to become an experimental physicist. When the startup scene in Berlin started to pick up pace, Tim got interested. His first couple of gigs were in mobile engineering, which influenced him to continue to pursue startups. Nowadays, he's a dog fosterer. That is, he rotates dogs through his apartment in Brooklyn, taking care of their special needs while a good home is found. In 2014, he and his co-founders had been experimenting with video and music-related apps, tinkering with creation inside of the different mediums for example, integrating with the iTunes library, and then, of course, sharing those creations with friends. They realized that the features they were creating were too complex for most users, but the ones they created for themselves, just for kicks, were the most interesting pieces of tech. So, they spent some time scrapping the complex features and centering around the short, quick, fun video creation to share. This is the creation story of Dub Smash. So Dev Smash is, is basically a platform to create, watch short videos, you know, share them with their friends. Uh, definitely quite a strong social component these days as well. What's unique about us probably um, these days is the very deep integration with the sound libraries that we have that our users upload. And that I think is really something that makes Dub Smash extra easy and extra fun kind of like to use. And most importantly, really kind of like creating very new and unique content that you can kind of like share with your friends and family and or maybe even your social media following out there, you know? And I think we, especially these days in 2020 has really been uh, quite a ride for us so far. I think we, we definitely do see ourselves a little bit more also as a platform that promotes kind of like equality and the, the freedom to express yourself, you know, in contrast to some of our competition out there. And yeah, so um, as I mentioned already, we got started with Dub Smash back in, in 2014 in the towards the kind of like tail end of that year. And up until that point, my co-founders and I, we kind of like had experimented with a bunch of other kind of like video related products. You know, most of them were focused on, on music, video kind of like creation using very sophisticated templates, you know, whereas kind of like today we're very much about short form video up to 60 seconds back then it was really minute long videos that we wanted to help the, the user create you know so the idea was picking your your favorite song um, from your like local itunes library and then we would do a bunch of magic on the on the technical sign around that 
cut it up into different pieces and templates and then allow you to record those, create the video in the end and then share that with your friend. And back then video was definitely in its very early stages. The hardware support was very slim and, and low. Just for kind of like comparison, the top device we, we actually built for back then was the iPhone 4S. I'm, I'm not sure how many of you guys um, had one of those or, or remember what the experience was. It was one of the, the first um, phones with a retina screen that feels very far away these days. So yeah, there were definitely kind of like lots of challenges on the technical side, but I think what was even more damning for, for that kind of line of products is that the things we worked on and the features we added, they were just way too complex and hard to understand for our users, you know? So the video creation on, on mobile just wasn't easy and, and fun back then, you know? And we didn't make it any more fun or any easier for them. Our creation flow had, I think, like over a dozen of steps with many different levers. And it was a very technical product in the end that I think had a lot of cool stuff going on under the hood, but it just didn't really cut it for most users, you know? So in classical startup style, we were very very close uh, to just, yeah, just shutting the whole thing down. You know, there's only so much you can do as, as, as a mobile app uh, back in 2014 that doesn't have any traction. And then kind of like very last minute, we did realize that we started sending each other like short MC Hammer music videos that we had created ourselves, you know, as little clips via, via text message back then to really just goof around, you know, they, they weren't meant to kind of like be a sophisticated piece of content, but really just something funny you could, could laugh at. They were very short, again, most of them were really meant for others to, to kind of like start giggling and they're actually very similar if you look back at them to what you know of the, the dub smash that it is today you know of the comedy side almost that it has for for some users what we did is scrapped all the complex product features we really spent literally two days just taking the the red pen and really like cutting and cutting and cutting and really boiled it down to kind of like what we thought was the the product at the core you know the, the mission we want to set out to build which was really making the creation process of of fun and short videos as easy kind of like as possible you know so to really lower that bar of creation that you have when when you just don't have any ideas on, on what you could create in pieces of content and dub smash as we know today is, is kind of the end result of that process you know and i think that ease of creation and that low bar of of entering and that low bar of creation that's definitely something that's still a core part of our product strategy uh, these days even Tell me about the MVP, how long it took to build and what sort of tools you use to bring it to life. So the MVP um, was really back then a pure creation only app. So if you look at Dub Smash today, it has a lot of social features. You have a user account, you have a feed, you can follow people, you can comment, you know, all the bells and whistles. Back then, the MVP, again, was really just a creation only app. It was a super simple flow. The app had literally three screens, no account, no consumption, no social features. So you would open the app, select one of the sounds we had available. We had them kind of like grouped in almost like a desktop way, you know, where you had like folders or categories of sounds and you could click on one and it would on the same screen unfold and show you the contents. You would select one of those, record your video in one take, no multiple segments, no no backseats basically. And then um, in the end you would land on our sharing screen, which you had like three simple buttons, I think back then for iMessage, Facebook Messenger, I think, and, and WhatsApp. And you could uh, basically just take that MP4 file with a watermark on it and just send it as an attachment on these. 
building that was actually pretty straightforward. So the, the MVP on iOS, um, I spent the better part of a full day on it. I think it was like 12 or 13 hours in the end. So started early in the morning, finished um, a little bit later at night. That was really mostly only possible because we had collected years of experience in working with kind of like the onboard SDKs that, that come with iOS, especially AV Foundation and Core Image. For you out there that might have used that already, you know how much fun these two frameworks specifically can be some days, you know, that really made the process kind of like really straightforward and, and easy to build. And I think looking back at it, the fact that the MVP only took a day to build was probably a good sign, you know, as it was kind of like an early indicator on how easy the creation process with Dubsmash really was, you know, and that's something we were always recognized for by our user base, you know, and I really, I think back then internalized this point of like, how long does it actually take to build a proof of concept for any new feature we're building? The MVP itself took only a day to build, but there were many, many, many iterations of that in the kind of like days and, and weeks to come. So, so automation is definitely something that we um, spent a lot of time on as, as well. Mobile CI is still definitely a big challenge these days back then. I think it was Jenkins that we had used to run our kind of like CI pipeline on on the little Mac Mini that we had in the corner of our office. You know, and that was really the the only option back then. And I think one of my my most fond memories from that time was um, that we at some point we found a, a video of John Luke Picard. So Captain Picard sitting in the Twitter office um, deploying something with their engineering team and then as the kind of like engineer that sat there pressed the deploy button he was saying engage you know in his, uh, <laughs> his Star Trek uh, kind of like voice and then what we ended up doing is we took that video extracted the audio from it and then uh, basically had the build server play that on, on full blast every time a new build went out so that was definitely a very fun thing to build as well. Yeah, I, I bet so. And you're doubling back a bit on the building the MVP in a day. I think even if you're a master with AV Foundation and Core Image, a day is is a speedy MVP. So kudos on that. Uh, I bet that was exciting. Yeah, it definitely was, you know, and I think that's something that is still these days one of the, the most exciting parts um, for me of being an engineer, you know, like working on something for a long time, having a lot of moments where you really feel like, man, this is going nowhere and I'm stuck with this tiny little detail, you know, and it just doesn't want to render the video or AV Foundation specifically also has this fun habit to just say, hey, I didn't want to render that and but not giving you any more kind of like input on what it didn't like, you know, so you're kind of like left to your own devices and sitting there and just trying out all the possible combinations but then having that working product um, in the end you know and having that satisfaction of, of being able to create that very first ever dub smash video that I actually still have um, in my my Dropbox I made sure to have a couple backups of that that's really something that was very rewarding you know and I think really definitely made the the hard work uh, that we all put into that MVP definitely worth it Let's dig into a little bit of those first iterations. So you built the MVP in a day and then you iterated a bunch of times after that. When you're doing those iterations, what decisions and trade-offs did you have to make as far as feature cut or technical debt and how did you cope with those decisions? As we set out to to cut back on all the product access we had previously, um, which ended up being the, the first version of Dubsmash, I think one of the, the biggest grievances we had with ourselves and the, the process kind of like we worked in back then was that we came up with features kind of like ourselves, you know, and then we spent easily two weeks, most of the time, like a month or more on building something and then would roll it out to our back then handful of users, you know, and 
crickets, you know, both on the, the numbers side as, as well as on the feedback side we would get from users. And that was definitely something that didn't sit well for us. So, so one of our main objectives with, with that new start with Dubsmash that we ended up getting was to really focus on shipping features as quickly as possible, you know. So we tried to remove as much friction from the process as, as possible. And one of these big pain points for us back then was definitely server-side development and integrating it with the mobile clients. You know, that's something that historically took a lot of time. It takes a lot of communication overhead. You know, I mean, no one likes to document their API endpoints, unfortunately, right? So, so that's definitely something we're definitely looking at to, to cutting back on, on that side. Whereas previous product iterations had kind of like more advanced integrations with backend components, you know, that's the, the magic I referred to earlier where we could kind of like analyze the beats of the sound you selected and generate a cutting scheme based on that. We definitely didn't really see the value it was adding for our users at that point. So, so one of the core decisions kind of like we had to make very early on was how to distribute the sounds in the app with as little work as, as possible, you know? So we knew that we had to quickly developing sound library and that only if we would update that super frequently and would be able to iterate very quickly on that, people would actually stay engaged with what back then was just a creation only tool, you know? So if you've kind of like run through all the sounds, then there wouldn't be any point in, in kind of like coming back to that. So we ended up skipping kind of like anything server-side, you know, so completely no user accounts, no databases, nothing. It might sound funny, but we hosted a simple JSON file on this three kind of like that included all the, the metadata, you know, so every sound was like a little dictionary, a little blob in that in that JSON list with kind of like the name where the, the sound file was, was stored. Sometimes I got a couple of tags and the group it was in. And then kind of like that JSON file really acted as our API back then, you know, so clients would kind of like start up, load that file from S3 and whenever we had new sounds come in that people submitted we would basically update it by hand a couple times so we would download the JSON file open it in text edit nothing fancy there like add a couple more items to that JSON and then re-upload it so the next time clients would kind of like come online they would actually go in ahead and uh, yeah just just display whatever they found in there you know and that process was granted super manual <laughs> required a lot of work many times we forgot a little comma or had a little mishap with kind of like the escaping in the JSON string so they wouldn't parse. But it really helped us bootstrap things very quickly, you know, and it also did actually end up by coincidence almost help us scale very quickly to the insane growth we had in, in the weeks after that. You know, I think if you have millions of downloads a, a day at some point, your backend just wouldn't be able to handle that and you would spend a, a lot of time on just scaling the, the API that the app is interacting with. And in this case, we were able to, yeah, to just offload that to, to AWS, you know, and have them uh, worry for it. And frankly, we barely paid any money for it. So it was really something that yeah that I think worked very well and then the other thing that we really had to fight back then and really had to make a call on was the distribution process of the the strategy itself so so back in 2014 you were actually considered lucky if your app was reviewed within two weeks you had to like submit it kind of like as a binary right and then um, Apple would review it. If you were lucky, that was two weeks. I, I had once, we, we had, I think, a month of, of review time, you know, and then they didn't like something and it, you would just start all over, you know? So you would work a lot, but you weren't really able to get it out into the hands of actual users and, and get feedback on that. So, so we knew that's something we needed to address as well, you know? So what we ended up doing for that is we had a little WhatsApp chat group with our early users, which back then was mostly friends and family, you know? So, so every time we push a new update, our builds are 
service that engaged me, we got the feedback pretty, pretty immediately, you know, and we were able to, to ask clarifying questions as well, you know, and that was something that helped us, yeah, iterate very quickly on that. I think key for that was, um, I hope no one from Apple is listening right now, but Apple has like two different distribution strategies. They have the normal kind of like app store, and then they have something called enterprise distribution certificate. So that's basically something where you don't need to submit your app for review, but you can just host the app bundle yourself. The, the downside, the limitation is you can only distribute it internally, you know? So we basically just gave everyone access to that. And, and that really enabled us to not have to wait for two weeks, but really just to release updates multiple times a day and then notify users of a new version being out there. And then that really cut back very drastically kind of like on our feedback cycles in the end. Hmm, that's interesting. You went, went with the enterprise enterprise certificate there. So how did you, from that point, and maybe a little bit around that point, how did you progress the product? How did you decide, I'm looking towards roadmap, how did you decide what was the next most important thing to build? The roadmap is, is definitely something that evolved not only on a daily basis, but but almost on an on an hourly basis, you know? So, so we, we had our uh, WhatsApp chat that I already mentioned, which at some point, of course, grew a little bit uh, too big, you know? That was definitely back then one of our kind of like main drivers for what features to add, you know? It's like something where users usually don't end up telling you what they want, but if they're missing something, they, they end up being very good at actually being like, hey, where's this feature? Not knowing that it doesn't actually exist. By allowing them to ask these questions, we were actually able to drive a lot of product insight from that. Another big thing we did as we scaled a little bit more and then the, the WhatsApp group at some point was kind of like too small, um, we integrated um, Intercom, which is basically like an in-app feedback support tool, which is mostly used for sales processes on websites these days, you know. Got a lot of crash in there as well. A lot of people just opened it. Uh, we're mean. A lot of people just typed ASDF, ASDF in there, just kind of like try it out. You know, but that's really something that helped us be focused really on the user, you know, and like really build whatever they were asking for. Because at the end of the day, we knew that we wanted to build fun features. We knew that we wanted to make video creation on, on mobile as easy and as engaging, not only for the creator, but also for the consumer in the end as, as much as possible. But that was our only like North Star, you know, otherwise we really built whatever the users were looking for. And I think that's something we still do today, you know, where we a lot of times really find ourselves directly talking to our users on Instagram, on Twitter, some of them even by email or via App Store reviews. And that's really something that that gets a, a lot of the feedback. And besides, of course, all the, the data and the metrics kind of like we have about our, our product usage, you know. So I think even these days, they have a couple of months worth of roadmap laid out to, to varying degrees of detail. You know, of course, what's, what's coming up in two weeks is fully scoped out. But what we want to do in two or three months, we're working on, on a little bit more on a flexible schedule on. But we really still like to keep our options and the processes kind of like as open as we can, you know, just to make sure that we can react to, to any last minute changes um, as long as they provide an upside and value for us, you know. And I think that's something that especially in, in 2020 has been, been coming in hand very, very much. So let's switch over to team. How did you build your team at Dub Smash? What, what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join your team? 
I think honestly, hiring, especially as a small startup, whether it's here in the US or, or in Europe, is definitely one of the more challenging things um, that, that's part of the CTO job, I find these days. There, there's a lot of competition out there, you know, and part of the reason why we kind of like moved the company from Germany to the US back in 2017 was really the ability to kind of like get access to the local job market here. You know, we had a hard time kind of like attracting the talent we were looking for back in Berlin, basically starting over in a new part of the world was on one side incredibly daunting right I, I i never lived before that outside of of germany i'm all of a sudden moving to the us especially in this political climate was definitely quite a jump you know but was a necessary and the right decision to to make one of the things that I find the most important about hiring is that on one side, you really want to make sure to kind of like stick to your guns and not get too freaked out if you happen to hit a dry spell, uh, so to speak, you know, where you're struggling to get the candidates in that you're looking for, for a couple of weeks, sometimes even a month at a time, depending on what role it is, you know, and that there's also this point that if you end up being afraid of losing out on, on certain candidates, you'll eventually make a rest decision, you know, and you'll hire the wrong people. And those mistakes usually cost you dearly in the long run and cause a lot of friction for everyone involved. So ultimately, I, I really like to, to hire people and like to work with people in general that I can, can fully trust, you know, that, that are driven to push themselves and the team around them to better standards that are ultimately not afraid to fail and get back up again. You know, I think that's something that um, in the startup world, you, you do need a lot of resiliency. You know, most of the times you only hear the kind of like success stories on the news, right? But the on the ground action usually looks quite a bit different, you know? So it's really important that people have the conviction and, and belief in, in where you're going, you know, and have the conviction to, to get back up and try again in a different way but still the ability to take some learnings out of whatever didn't go well and, and really kind of like internalize that going forward. So let's flip over to scalability. And you touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to dive into a little more. How did you approach scalability? It sounds like in the MVP, you were operating more with unconstrained models where there were some manual steps and things. But how did you fight this as you grew and how did you, how did you approach this? You know, people say do things that don't scale. <laughs> I think that is something that is very cliche, but I, th I think it's definitely true, you know. And things, of course, always didn't kind of like always scale, you know, especially in the beginning. We had on one side, we had explosive growth, you know, we needed all hands on deck to kind of like keep the systems up and running. And on the other side, we, we also were an even smaller team than we are today. And, and on top of that, in, in full transparency, sometimes we just didn't really know what we were doing, you know, on the technical side. Over the years, we really learned uh, a lot on the infrastructure side, you know, running databases, scaling web machine. But I think one of the core things that I personally learned very early on is that I'm seeing myself and the team around me really as a team kind of like of product engineers, you know. So I want to make sure that we can focus on what we do best, which I think is building product and hand off all these DevOps, very infrastructure heavy tasks like running Postgres databases, um, building Docker images to deploy on machines, all of that really off to people that know better what they're doing there and that in, in sometimes even have written parts of that stack themselves. So, so we're definitely utilizing a lot of managed services across the, the different cloud providers to really put together our systems. And I think that's really something, a strategy that really has helped us scale through these phases of, of growth and really make sure that we can spend the little time we have on one side on the architecture, of course, that you still have to do yourself, 
but also on the product we want to build, you know, because ultimately the user doesn't care for how many machines you have running under the hood. What the user actually cares for is how fun the product is and how, how snappy it responds, you know, and I think that's definitely something where you, you will have to make some, some core decisions uh, on what you want to um, spend your time on. I think under the hood, there was definitely some rolling pains, but now looking back at that journey, what I find very interesting about that is actually that the, these growing pains, they were not only on the pure kind of like how many resources in terms of servers and databases and whatnot, but it's also a lot about the scaling the code bases you work on, you know, and how you work on them as a team, both on the backend side as well as the client side. And that's definitely something where I think in hindsight, we made some some interesting and, and probably they could be considered poor choices um, in the beginning. You know, I, I think one, one example of that is our previous iOS code base. We actually ended up rewriting it uh, back in 2017 as part of the move to New York. But one of the core features it had in the beginning was the ability to use it offline, you know? So because of that JSON file that we used as an API for actually a surprisingly long amount of time, we had very high concerns about what would happen if that JSON file wouldn't parse or wouldn't be available, you know? So we wanted to make sure that as the user loaded a certain version of that JSON file, we would actually persist it and show it to them the next time they would open the app until there was a new version available, which we would then use to update the user interface, you know? And this kind of like offline mode, you could probably call it, is something that really made the, the iOS code base and the, the architecture we built around it very hard to maintain very slow to work on and overall just really having a very poor crash free rate. You know, at some point, I think we were at 97% crash free rate, which might to some people not sound too bad, but honestly, that that's way below the standard I'd like to, to set for, for myself and the team. That's really something that ended up requiring us to, to rewrite the whole thing for, uh, took us a couple months because at that point, of course, the app was um, a lot bigger already. And I think so the scalability really isn't only about the, the server side stuff for me anymore but it's really about the speed of change. You can evolve your product, the architecture, and ultimately the code with for me. Over the years, I think building a system that scales indefinitely, but is like super buttoned up from day one, you will have a very hard time kind of like adding new features afterwards or changing existing ones, you know, and that really slows you down in your product development and how quickly you can ship new, new features to your users. And ultimately that will end up hindering the growth of your company. I really found that the simple solutions usually end up scaling the best for us as they're easy to maintain, they're easy to reason about, you know, and they also usually have the least requirements on the hardware side. These days, really, the rule of thumb for us is to, to build things as complex and scalable as, as necessary, but as simple as possible at the same time. You know, it's about finding the balance where you want to build a feature and, and the product in the end that is technically versatile and sophisticated enough to actually make a good impression on the user and be in fun to use. You know, no one likes an app that is laggy or that crashes. But at the same time, you really want to optimize for the speed you can change it with, you know, and you can iterate on it within, um, because in the end, you can always make things more complex, you know, making them more simple after a fact, that's usually the time intensive task and the one that doesn't scale well. That balance is definitely a worthy target to shoot for. I got to ask, how big did that JSON file get before you <laughs> ended up moving on from it? So that JSON file actually um, got probably like, I think like 50 kilobytes or something. Um, what really broke the system then, so to speak, is that um, we grew explosively in, in Germany. 
and then um, the next market to kind of like follow on were France and the Netherlands also in Europe. So the Netherlands, um, Dutch is of course its own language, but it's somewhat similar-ish to, to German in some shapes or forms. So some of the sounds you could actually almost interchangeably use for those users. But French of course was a completely different language. So within a couple of weeks, we had the need to have different localized markets. So the client would be like, hey, my phone, the phone I'm running on is uh, has a French keyboard. So I'm going to use the French version of the localized data and show them the French sounds and the user in Germany would see the, the German sounds. So what we ended up doing is we took that JSON that we had, which was just a list, change it to instead of list, be a dictionary, and then have a key for every language in there. So all the clients across the world would download all the sounds from all the languages and then take just the, or display just the language they were actually interested in, right? So like that JSON really grew exponentially. I think at some point when we called it quits was like five megabytes or something. So at some point it really took the client depending on their internet connection, which again, back then was also way different than it is today. Really took them a couple seconds or up to a minute depending on what kind of connection they were on well as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built with dub smash what are you most proud of over the years, we, we really built um, a lot of cool features in full transparency. We, we also built a lot of things that don't exist anymore these days for, for very good reasons, you know? And I think that's something that I'm proud of for the team to, to iterate so much on and for finding a way to be resilient with these kind of changes, you know, this ever-changing kind of like product roadmap. But I think what I'm the most proud of is really the, the cultural impact that uh, Dub Smash had over the years. You know, we not only build a product that is is truly enjoyed by many of millions of users across the globe, but it's really something that back then was first of its kind. We really did inspire, I think, a lot of people along the road. And for some, we even changed their life for the better. You know, they ended up becoming big movie stars or entertainers through Dub Smash. And I got into mobile development initially because I love being able to write apps that ran on my own phone, you know, that I could actually touch and, and use myself. So now being able to actually see people use my apps on the streets or in the subway or wherever that might be, that's really something that I, I think is really rewarding for myself personally and always puts a smile on my face. Let's flip the script a little bit, Tim. What's a mistake you made? Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Going back to your earlier question on, on how I like to, to build my team, it's it's definitely one that I, I like to build it in a way where it's very open with each other. It's very direct and communicative about learning from each other and the mistakes we make as individuals as well as a team. You know, I think especially when you work with such a small team in such a fast-paced environment, things can go wrong um, a lot of times. One occurrence that comes to mind is um, a recent sprint where we kind of like wanted to ship um, some features to our share screen um, and the logic that gets involved in the creation process. In hindsight, it was a lot of work. We definitely overscoped for our usual two-week sprint cycle, so, so we definitely picked up a little bit more work than we could actually chew. Towards the end of the sprint, we were nearing the release candidate deadline that we usually end up setting ourselves for Tuesday night so we can run extensive QA, get the release all polished up, and then get it into our users' hands before the weekend's. Back then, the, the things just started to look a little bit tight, you know, and, and I could start to tell that we weren't really be able to hit it in the end. So I really was able to get everyone engaged, get everyone on board. We worked incredibly hard to really get things back on track, ship to our users before the weekend, so by Friday. But by Friday night, we still had issues with certain aspects, you know, and while I am a person that really likes to ship early, likes to ship often, you know, and I'd rather cut two releases and like fix up a couple bucks with the second one rather than holding the first one back, 
it just didn't really work it, you know. So I eventually had to call it quits、um, without being able to ship that Friday. So that was definitely something that was really demotivating to send your team into the weekend with an experience like that. You know, everyone really gave their best, and we just weren't able to hit it. That really is something that, yeah, you probably just don't want to really send anyone into the weekend with as leaders. What we did on on Monday, we sat together first thing in the morning after stand up, had a little. Postmortem about it, talked it through about what happened and what we could have done to avoid the situation. And I personally really had a good feeling at the beginning of the the former week, you know, that we wouldn't be able to to make it. Deep down, I I knew, but I just wasn't verbal enough, and it let things naturally progress until a point where just yeah, it was too late, you know, and that's something I shouldn't have done it. But、um, we we sat together, and I think we came up with a couple of very small but very kind of like key changes to our process, and we were actually able to hit the coming sprint in full stride again, you know, and I think that's really something that that helped to、uh, boost morale quite a bit, and we definitely came out stronger as a team on the other end. So, what does the future look like for the product and for your team? On the product side, we're definitely working quite actively right now on giving back more to our creators, and, and most importantly, I think in a meaningful way. You know, likes and, and views and, and that kind of stuff. That、um, that social currency that everyone is familiar with these days. That doesn't actually like make a living for you, you know. That's kind of like just a, a little badge you have on on some profile and some app. People really use mobile apps these days not only for consuming fun content, but also for creating them and really advancing themselves in the in the real world, so to speak, you know, and, and anything offline. And sometimes they even make it to a point where they can actually make a living off it. Dub Smash definitely wants to be a part of that journey, you know. And we want to not only be a part of that journey. But we really want to use our our reach and, and our scale to to really help to amplify that, really help our users to to get somewhere offline. And we definitely are working on figuring out kind of like more ways right now to contribute to that journey, you know. And the meaningfulness is really something that that's very important for for Jonas Such and I, and really something that that all Dub Smash team is looking into quite a bit right now on the product side. So on the team side,、um, we definitely need to grow in headcount, of course. As I mentioned earlier, already hiring is definitely something that that's a very tough part of the job, you know. And I want to make sure that we bring on people that have what it takes to be part of our team, you know, and that we enjoy working with on a on a daily basis. So, of course, we do need to grow headcount to just make sure that we can ship more and more kind of like complex、uh, features. While we do that, I really do hope that we'll find a way to not only stay as effective and efficient、um, as a team as we are right now, but we also can keep including that directness and that culture of constant learning that we established over the years, and and that's really a key part of what I what I see my team as of right now, and I really hope that we can keep doing that. Let's switch to you, Tim. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, a CTO, an architect, or really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. The two people that I definitely want to mention on here today is、uh, Jonas and Zuchit, my my two co-founders at Dubsmash.、Um, it might sound a little bit cliche, you know, but starting a company together、um, really is like getting married.、Uh, I would say for for better or for worse, you know, there is a lot of fun times, there is a lot of fun memories, but there's also a lot of stuff that goes wrong all the time, you know, and that really takes a very well working kind of like unit of three to to really handle that. And I, I really do enjoy getting the the input on the non-technical side from them, you know, and. The three of us, we we always find a very good balance between business, product, and tech. You know, even though that requires some some tough decisions, and I think especially、um, in in 2020, which has been really quite a roller coaster for all of us, it's really great to you know that I have partners on my side that are not only pulling their weight, but that I really also can rely 100 on on pulling through and really supporting me and the team and whatever it needs. 
if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? As an engineer, I, I really thought for, to be honest, way too long that the technical superior product is always going to win out in the end, you know, that it's not that much about all the, the non-technical stuff, that, but that building a technically great app and building a super fast um, API that scales very well, that that's all it takes to, to really make a product successful. But I think that's really something that I ended up realizing that that's not true anymore these days, you know. A great user experience gets created when you have a high quality container, so to speak, an app basically, right? Meet very high quality content that is hosted within that container. The container can't live without the content. The content can't live without the container, of course. It really is that combination of both that makes a, a product truly successful. So looking back at it, I think that's really something where I would like to spend a little bit more time on the non-technical aspects of building an, an engaging product, and especially, I think, for, for Dub Smash, content and marketing is really something that we, we should have, looking back at it, uh, spent a little bit more time early on. You know, people not only care about the technical quality of an app, how snappy it is but the, the coolness factor is really something that is really important these days you know and that's really hard to influence influence with purely technical measures and in the end I, I think i would do more often what's strictly best for the user and the experience they, they have not what i might find convenient or logical from a technical point of view you know they might not always be the same and i think what matters in the end is building the the option that's better for the ux even if that means you'll have to put in some extra technical work or the the technical kind of like solution that you end up building under the hood just doesn't feel as clean the user will really value it and i think that's what what matters in the long run Okay, last question, Tim. You're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to you, to the world. They really think it's going to be a game changer. What advice would you give that person having gone down this road quite a bit? Definitely keeping it simple and, and iterate frequently. I think that's really the only thing that will make you successful. I see a lot of people these days that spend sometimes even years in what they call stealth mode as a startup, you know, but I, w I would argue that if, if you're in stealth mode and, and you don't actually ship product to any users, you're not actually adding any value to your product, your investors or to users in the end, you know, and that's not going to do anyone any good because you won't have any chance to kind of like validate that you're on the right track and really taking it step by step great products aren't built in a day they, they are built over weeks and months and, and years to come you know if you look at all the the big what's considered successful companies these days they all have gone through a lot of phases and iterations most of them consider un unsuccessful in the early days and i think that's really something that you you won't find the perfect solution from the start you know you really need to iterate to get there and you need to get a lot of feedback and you need to really be listening to that and really just building whatever the user wants and i think that's really something that if you just keep doing that um, and have the the conviction and the the mental stability to really get through all of these unexpected turbulences and, and roadblocks along the road then uh, you're really like gonna be just fine in the end. And I think just having that that long long run breath basically and, and being quick on your feet and all aspects across the company, that's, that's really important. At the end of the day, cycle time is everything. Um, if you keep that down and you iterate a lot, you'll eventually, most likely at least, find, uh, find your product market fit. And then from there, you can actually start scaling it and building it out to a big business in the end. That's great advice. Well, Tim, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Dub Smash. Thanks for having me. 
And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.